Good morning. 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 And uh, a couple announcements before we get started this morning. As you know, Margaret Tilstra had uh, open heart surgery. She's uh, doing uh, well. She's now out of the hospital in a rehab center. And then we've been working to bring more and more materials online just to kind of review what's available thus far. We, you know, we've, we've got the fundamental focus that you can take and, and uh, share. We've got uh, the the Let's Talk DVD on domestic violence in the church, the Healing the Mind uh, uh, DVDs, the... Uh, the uh, Could It Be This Simple, which are available for anybody who comes to visit the class. You can take those with you. Uh, and now the new Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology, and Your Brain DVD series. Uh, we have those available. And these, uh, both this and the Could It Be This Simple, are available for anybody who comes to visit our class. You can just take those with you as kind of a thank you for coming and visiting with us. And if you want one shipped to you, um, we're asking the, that you give a suggested donation of $20 to help defray the costs. But it's not a requirement. Um, if you really can't afford it and you want one, we'd be glad to still uh, provide one. And we will be glad to ship these at no cost to any church library or school library um, at no cost. So, All right, let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We pray that your spirit will be with us and direct uh, our, our thoughts and conversations. May we come to a, a clear knowledge and understanding of you and the, and the world and the universe that you've created. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson one in our new quarterly Origins. Origins, And the title this week is Jesus, Creator of Heaven and Earth. Um, and as, I, as you look at the, the title for the quarter, just as you look at the question of origins, as we go through this quarter, are there any questions that you would like to have answered this quarter? Any, any questions about origins, about um, the mysteries of the cosmos that you're hoping that we, we get answers for this, this quarter? And that, that's maybe catching you off guard. Think about it. If there are, uh, let me know about that, and we'll try to see if we can't find answers as we go through the quarter. Sunday's lesson... It, uh, in Sunday's lesson, it's contrasting the Big Bang with the theory of uh, the Big Bang theory with the uh, the teaching of creation, with biblical creation. And which do you think, as we go through today's lesson, will turn out to be more scientific, the Big Bang theory or the Bib- or biblical creation? Yeah. Well, you guys, I've got a stacked audience, don't I? Yeah. Creation, that's right. Well, let's see what happens as we go through. First paragraph says the following. There are many deep truths uh, in that simple, basically, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, uh, Genesis 1.1. There are many deep truths in that simple text, one of the most uh, profound being that the universe itself had a beginning. While that idea might not seem so radical to us today, it goes against the long-held belief of an eternally existing creation. Not until the 20th 20th century, when the Big Bang model of origins took hold, did the notion that the universe had a beginning gain general acceptance. Until then, many believed that it had always existed. Many people resisted the concept of the universe having, having been created because that implied some sort of creator. In fact, the name Big Bang was intended to mock the notion of a created universe. But the evidence that the universe has a beginning has become so strong that nearly all scientists have accepted it, at least for now. Scientific views, even those once deemed sacrosanct, are often changed or refuted. So the first question regarding uh, the idea of the universe having a beginning. If you were to write the lesson, would you have chosen Genesis 1-1 as the best text to represent the creation of the universe, or would you have chosen something else from Scripture? Can you think of any other text that... And and, and I'm going to ask you and why. Why do you think that would be better than Genesis 1-1, if there are any? Do you think any? What? 
John 1, okay, John 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things, all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So I like that one. Hebrews 1 and 2. In, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to, uh, to possess all things in the end. So I like those two. Yes? And you like Genesis 1-1 because it's short and sweet and to the point. You know, for an unbeliever, maybe, you know, John 1 and 3 might be too much. But this is simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. I mean, it's just like a nice suffering. You know, you can't repeat that. It's so simple and clear. It is straightforward and simple and clear. I guess the question we're asking is Genesis 1-1 really refer to the universe, or does it just refer to this creation, this solar system? And and that's the question I'm trying to contrast here. I'm 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 of... I'm going to suggest to you that Genesis 1-1 is actually not about, and I'm going to give you the evidence. Let's go through a couple more texts. Hebrews 11-3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, I like this text because the whole universe is created, and it wasn't created out of anything that was visible before. So it's giving you that idea it's created out of nothing. Um, no preexistent matter. And then the last one I like is Colossians 1-15-17. Uh, talking about Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And, uh, he is before all things, and all things hold together through him. So this is a very comprehensive thing here. Um, but the reason I'm suggesting that Genesis 1-1 is not about the solar system. The other four texts I read, if you notice, they were comprehensive. Universe, all things, heaven, earth, all these other things going on, um, powers, authorities, uh, so forth and so on, is because of Job 38, 4-7. And Job 38, 4-7 says the following. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked out off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched off the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang and all the angels shouted for joy? What is this text suggesting that I just read about creation of earth? Well, if the angels are singing together for joy when earth is being created, what does that tell you? The universe is already in existence. There you go. So the universe is here before earth was created. And so I'm suggesting Genesis 1-1 is a, a description of the creation of our solar system, basically but not the whole universe, whereas the Bible gives at least four other texts, if not more, that God created the entire universe as well. So, I don't know, that's just a suggestion. Uh, you, had a, you had a comment? I like the New Testament comments better than Genesis 1-1 because I have friends that are in a Baptist church that kind of throw out a lot of the Old Testament. Because they don't take it as seriously. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Were the angels created before the universe was created? I guess it depends on how you define universe, doesn't it? I mean, what do you define the universe to be? Right. I, I take John 1.1 1, 1, um, as the true beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then from God came everything else, right. including the angels. And once he begins to create, you know, I consider all creation part of it as the universe. Right. So, um, 
But you know something? One of the founders of our church also put the creation of Earth um, after the creation of the rest of the universe, or at least the rest of the heavenly universe. It says in uh, uh, Conflict and Courage, uh, page 18, angels on probation had been deceived by Satan and had been led on by him in great rebellion in heaven against Christ. They failed to endure the test brought to bear upon them, and they fell. Adam was then created in the image of God and placed upon probation. Where is that? Uh, Conflict and Courage, page 18. So, uh, you know, at least taking those texts from Scripture, I put together others have actually seen this, this flow of time where there was a creation of heavenly beings, creation of something in the cosmos, and then later um, earth was created and mankind upon it. But what do you think of this parenthetical statement at the end of the paragraph that says this? Scientific views, even those once deemed sacrosanct, are often changed or refuted. What do you think of that idea? Do you think it's set in there as a statement of praise? We, we, va- we, we are so thankful that scientists remain open-minded, looking at evidences. We're willing to change long-held sacrosanct ideas. Don't get locked into rigid thinking. Uh, do you think it's said in a way that is very positive here? Or does it almost sound like a criticism? It's, I mean, I, maybe it's just me. That's why I'm asking you guys, how, what was your take on that? So I'm positive, hey, we're really glad that they do that, or uh, you can't trust science because they're always changing everything they believe anyway. Well, what about religion? What about theology? Should theology be open to change, just like this, views that were once held long, even sacrosanct views, should, should we be able to change and refute those? Should we be open to do that? Or should we take our views and hold them rigidly and reject all new ideas that could challenge those views? Yes? Well, do you believe that there's such a thing as such, there's certain truths in Scripture that never change and should never change? Is there such a thing? Do I, do I believe there's a certain thing as a human that understands all truth perfectly and can't have a better understanding of that truth? <laughs> See? So the question isn't about the truth in Scripture. The question is about the human mind's capacity to understand that truth in Scripture. Yes. I just think science is extremely important in understanding scripture because if we didn't have science, we'd still think the earth was flat. We need science to open up our minds to the possibilities. This is uh, this is this has been a point of theological. Yes, in the back over here. Uh, you, know, you can you can apply that to, uh, to to science as well. You know, the laws of science are well, first of all they were created by God, and they're fixed. But it takes us to to test and understand those. You know, back when they thought the world was flat, that's the way they measured it. It was, in fact, flat. But as they got more knowledge and more interpretation of what science really meant, then they found out it was a sphere and it wasn't the center of the universe as they thought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Back to truth sets you free because the the greater (laughs) of an understanding of science that we have, the more it points to the creator. And so, so you guys are suggesting God is infinite, we're finite, What's that gap between God and us? Infinite. So how much room is there for us to grow in our knowledge of truth? Infinite. So this idea that we could come to an understanding of Scripture that has no room for growth is a flawed idea. It's flawed. We should be growing continually. Whatever our understanding is today, it has room for expansion. And that's why in our class we never ever want to arrive at truth. We want to grow in truth. We want to advance in truth. We want to move forward in truth. We don't want to arrive because you arrive, you set down your roots, and then all new ideas have to be proven wrong and, de- and defeated. Yes. 
And we're all at different places on that continuum, too. <laughs> we are all at different places. So, so this, this idea that we're talking about here, though, about, about certain truths should be sacrosanct and, and shouldn't be challenged and shouldn't be questioned, this has been a, a, an idea in theology for millennia, and it's been battled back and forth. And it was a, a question even in the early uh, uh, found, uh, parts of our church when our church was coming along, and one of the founders of our church addressed this question. And this is out of um, Review and Herald, December 20, 1892. And it says, but as real spiritual life declines, okay, so are we on that advancement phase or are we on that like wrong, wrong direction phase? As real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. Men rest satisfied with light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of scriptures. They become conservative. <laughs> they become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all of our, our, this talking about this particular denominational organization, that our expositions of scriptures are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine loses anything by close investigation. Do you just love that? That is so awesome. Okay? And how, how many how many have lived by that? Did you, did you, when you came up through the school system and the church school system and the, and the, and the Sabbath school or the Sunday school, whichever you went to, uh, did you experience that attitude from your teachers? Sometimes. Sometimes, yes. Yes, sometimes. That was a refreshing attitude, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to skip a couple others I've put in notes for you, for you guys, but there's, uh, there's another one I want to uh, read here, and it's, um, experience is said to be the best teacher. This is out of um, Christian Temperance and Bible Hygiene 109. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea as to what constitutes experience. What constitutes experience? Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits, the results are marked with careful solicitude. In other words, you're studying very carefully. You're thinking, you're examining, you've laid out a hypothesis, you're testing this hypothesis with experimentation. What's this sound like? Science. Yes. That which many term experience is not experience at all. There has not been a... There has not been what? A fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Here is where many have met the greatest difficulty in religious matters. Whoa! Whoa, did you, did you hear it? Yeah. The plainest facts may be presented. The clearest truths sustained by the word of God may be brought before the mind, but the ear and the heart are closed. And all convincing argument is my experience, some will say. The Lord has blessed me in believing and doing as I have. Therefore, it cannot be an error. My experience is clung to and most elevating sanctifying truths of the Bible are rejected. Many examples might be given to show how people have been deceived by relying upon what they suppose to be experience. So, how are we to determine, as we go through, how do we determine what, what we believe? 
Upon what should it be constructed or built? Our beliefs. Traditions? No. Parents? No. Sabbath school teachers, right? <laughs> textbooks. Textbooks. That's it. If it's in a textbook, it must be true. No. Internet. Internet. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Okay? Right? Yes. Every generation runs into the, uh, the idea of question authority. You've seen that on, on uh, bumper stickers before, I'm sure. You know? And we, but we remember, for instance, what Pharaoh said to Moses. He says, who is God that I should fear him or, or listen to him? So we're always looking for an excuse. or We always feel that we have our established channels of authority. And, and, and so Pharaoh asked the question, and Scripture gives an answer. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What is that? What is that? You, know, you know the Scripture, right? What does it mean? What, what, functionally, what does it say? Taste and see means experience. Check it out. Test it. Do a careful experiment. As was described here. Don't just go by a claim. Don't just go by a proclamation. God is real. His principles are real. Test it out. Check it out. So we suggest in this class what we call the integrative evidence-based approach. Integrative. Integrating three threads of evidence. Scripture, science, and experience. All three integrated. So when we come to a belief, it needs to be sustained and supported by all three. Scripture, science, and experience. So when we find a conflict between scripture and science, say, it could be an error in our understanding of science. It could be an under error, as was mentioned earlier about the flat earth thing, in our understanding of scripture. But rightly understood, there will be harmony between the three. This is what we suggest. So the Big Bang postulates, uh, the, oh, so down at the bottom of the, uh, of the lesson, uh, a couple of paragraphs, uh, it says, creation from nothing is known as creation ex nihilo. Uh, we often credit humans with the creation of various things, but humans are incapable of creating from nothing. We can change the form and pre- of pre-existing matter, but we have no power to create ex, ni- ex nihilo. Only the supernatural power of God can do that. This is one of the most dramatic differences between God and humans, and it reminds us that our very existence depends on the Creator. So the Big Bang postulates that the universe came from nothing, from no pre-existing matter. And how is that different than what the lesson is suggesting? And if you read the paragraph before, the universe was not formed from pre-existing matter. What's the difference? And it is, a, it is a difference. It's, it's, it's not just semantics, but it is a difference. Let me ask you this. While God was not dependent upon pre-existing matter, as the lesson points out, did the universe come from absolutely nothing, or did the universe come from something? See, Big Bang, absolutely nothing. There was absolutely nothing. No energy, no mass, no matter, no gravity, no intelligent being, nothing. And boom, now it's here. Creation says there was no pre-existing matter, but there was something, and that something is God. So it didn't come from nothing. It came from God. Uh However you define God, whether he's energy, whether he's intelligence, whether he's love, but he is something, he's not nothing. But he was not dependent on pre-existing matter 
to create the universe. But the universe didn't come from nothing. It came from God. Do you see the difference? Yes, go ahead. In the Big Bang, you can't say that it came from nothing. That's what they say. There's no bomb that can explode if there's not a bomb available. Hey, now, you know, you're, 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 now you're trying to be reasonable. <laughs> when it comes to the, the theory of origins, it is an unreasonable theory. We'll go through some more evidence here. In fact, let's go through some evidence. What evidence can you cite that supports creation over evolution as the origin of life and the universe? Okay, good. Natural law. Natural law. The evolution is contrary to natural law without exception for origins, um, whereas creation is consistent with natural law. For example, creation is consistent with the laws of thermodynamics and biogenesis, and I'll go through those. Let's look at the fundamental premises, fundamental premises of each theory. Fundamental premise, something comes from nothing. This, that, that's um, evolution. Creation, something comes from something, that something being God. Now, the, this theory violates the first law of thermodynamics, which states that energy is conserved. This law does not violate the first law of thermodynamics. This law, we can, if, you, if you test these two principles right now, if we're scientific, if we're scientific and we go into the, our world and do experience with careful experimentation, which one can we reproduce? Something coming from something or something coming from nothing? Okay, so the first is scientific. Second law, uh, the second, complexity comes from chaos. This is, a, this is a fundamental premise of evolution. Complex things like life comes from chaos without any intelligent input whatsoever. Whereas creation says complexity comes out of chaos with intelligent input. Now we can go. This is the second law of thermodynamics, that things tend toward disorder, the law of entropy, that if you're not putting energy into a system, that system will decay over time. If you leave your house for 20 years and walk away and do nothing with it, it will not be in the same good shape as you left it. Assuming it was in good shape when you left it. So this is the second law of thermodynamics, which is also testable. We can test this law. Uh, if you remember the computer Watson, IBM's creation that competed in Jeopardy, it's a huge, magne- uh, uh, it's a huge giant thing, but it, it, it won the Jeopardy competition against two humans. Anybody think that, that Watson came about after an explosion in an IBM factory? No, everybody understands that took a lot of, of intelligent design and energy in to take chaos and make this complex thing. And the human brain is infinitely more complex than Watson. Infinitely more complex. So if we use, again, the scientific method and test which one, can somebody even show me one place in any of our testable scientific world where complexity comes from chaos without any intelligent input? Can't do it. It always goes towards disorder. So second law of thermodynamics. First law of thermodynamics is violated with, with evolutionary theory. Second law of thermodynamics is violated with evolutionary theory. Third This is the law of biogenesis. This is the principle of, again, here's the principle, life came from non-living material on its own. Life comes from non-life. That's how life got started. There was a spark and some primordial soup. Boom, there's an amino acid. That amino acid found a friend and joined up and and it it became protein. That protein eventually became a nucleic acid and and somehow that got together and formed a a little life form and that little life form eventually uh, found a friend and they began mating and producing themselves and and boom, all all on its own, life came out of non-life. Or creation says life comes from living matter. 
life comes from life. Which is testable in science in the world today? Life comes from life. Okay, this is the law of biogenesis. Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, uh, they used to have this thing, this theory called spontaneous generation. Before they understood germs, before they understood microscopic seeds and spores of, 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 of fungi and stuff like this, they, they had this belief that, that you know, the dirt, uh, that nobody touched it, and, and, and these fungi would start growing out of it, and they said, oh, it's just spontaneous. They didn't understand spore. Louis Pasteur, of course, did his experimentation and said, no, no, no. The law of biogenesis, living matter has to give life to living matter. So these are, the, these are the first. What else? There is no biological process for evolution into higher forms or higher levels of complexity. This is another one you can test. Show me where a mutation advances a species. Because the whole theory is mutation. Random mutation will enhance a species and, and advance it, adding genetic uh, uh, complexity, adding genetic um, viability, adding genetic um, um, uh, um, information. Um, I would recommend to you a book called Genetic Entropy by Sanford, who is an applied geneticist at uh, Cornell University. And he does an incredible job of documenting with um, scientific um, experimentation and, and literature citations over and over again that there are no mutations that have been shown to actually be beneficial. They're all harmful. Most of them are very, very, very slightly harmful. And so you don't notice them. But they all are harmful. And with every generation, every generation, at least 300 new harmful mutations enter your DNA that your parents didn't have. Every generation has a minimum of 300 harmful mutations. It means we're becoming less fit. Every generation is becoming less fit than the generation before. Some people go, wait a minute, well, how come we're living longer? It has nothing to do with DNA. It has to do with um, science, providing uh, clean water, Waste disposal, vaccines, uh, hearing aids, um, glasses, uh, medications, um, dentistry. Dentistry is a big one. Uh, uh, dentistry, before dentistry, people would die because they'd get abscessed teeth, they'd get septic, and they'd die. Antibiotics. Uh, antibiotics, okay. So the reason we're living longer has nothing to do with our genes getting more fit. They're still get degrading. It has to do with we're compensating with a lot of good science to try and hold together this falling human body that we have <clears throat> what about uh you know the geological landforms and sedimentary features uh, that we have around the world they're all consistent with a massive flood in the aftermath of um mount saint helen you remember mount saint helen what happened in the great uh, aftermath of the, of the water and the frame and all this stuff is that they had um Deposits laid down in the sedimentary rock, and this, the sedimentary deposits came very consistent in the aftermath of the flood. It was really de- demonstrated there. Um, do you know that uh, if you've been in, in various textbooks and or um, museums, you see what's called a geological column, which shows various crustaceans going up the higher column? Do you understand that's fiction? It does not exist in the real world. They cannot go out in the real world and show you a column. It's not out there. It was created in somebody's mind, and they drew it, and they put it on a book. But you can't go out anywhere in the world and find a geological column like that that goes from, oh, you can find a couple of layers that has a few things in it, but you can't find an intact column that goes from the, the low form all the way to the high form. It's not out there. And here's a bigger one. There are no transitional life forms. Now, the theory of evolution says that lower life forms evolve into higher life forms over millions of years, slowly and gradually. 
which means there are billions there, there, there had to be, there had to be millions of years in which there were, there were species that were, were in between the species we have now. With billions of those animals out there, where's the fossil record of that? They can't even find one. And even if they found one, that one, that, that's some type of weird looking thing between something else, they're gonna suggest that represents all of the millions of life forms that should be. No, what that would be would see some strange mutation of some sort. And we can see, just look around, sometimes you see a mutated or weird animal that has some gross thing that happens to it. Or even a human sometimes with a bad disease. They can look not quite right. Okay? No, that's not you. She said, that's me. No, that's not her. <laughs> but this is profound. You know, the, the classic missing link, where is it? Carbon-14. Do you know carbon-14 has been found in coal and diamonds that are supposedly millions of years old? But carbon-14 has a half-life of 50,000. I mean, it, it, it's gone in 50,000 years. It's short-lived. 50,000 years, it's gone. So how are they finding carbon-14 in these diamonds that are supposed to be millions of years old? What does that say? Um, you all know, you're familiar with the radioisotopes and radio halos and the bedrock that, uh, that are consistent with a creation event, not a long cooling of millions of years event. How about the seven-day weekly cycle? Why doesn't every culture of known recorded history of the world have a seven-day weekly cycle? Not just Jews and Christians and Muslims that have a connection to the the Bible. Why does every culture of the world have a seven-day weekly cycle? Where's that from? Show me me where in nature you get a seven-day weekly cycle. Some natural reason for that. No, the Bible gives us the reason for that. God established a seven-day weekly cycle, and every culture of the world, regardless of religion, has a seven-day weekly cycle. It's profound. And, of course, we've talked in here before about the law of love and the principle upon giving upon which all nature is built, and you can look out and see this. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen to you, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life was built, as Scripture describes. So as we go through this, which theory is more scientific? Creation? Or evolution? Did I stump you? Did I confuse you? This was not a trick question. <laughs> Creation is abundantly more scientific. Do you have to wonder why? Why is it that it's not being taught? The artful liar. The artful liar. There you go. All right, Monday's lesson. Um, I'm going to... We'll come back to Monday. We'll, we'll come back. Well, let's, all right, let's go through Monday real fast. <clears throat> um, I just want to read these paragraphs to you because I thought it did a a really good job of describing some of the complexity issues. It says, not just any kind of universe could be capable of supporting life. In fact, it seems that the universe must be extremely well designed in order for life to exist. First, the building blocks of all matter, atoms, must be stable enough in order for stable material objects to be created. The stability of atoms depend on the forces that hold the various parts of the atom together. Atoms contain charged particles that both attract and repel each other. The forces of attraction and repulsion must be carefully balanced. If the attractive forces are too strong, only large atoms could form, and there'd be no hydrogen, and without hydrogen, there'd be no water, and thus no life. If repulsive forces are too strong, then only small atoms could form, such as hydrogen, and there'd be no carbon or oxygen, and without oxygen, there'd be no water, and thus no life. And carbon, of course, is also essential for all life as we know it. Not only 
must the atoms be stable, but they must be able to interact with one another in order to form vast numbers of different chemical compounds. There must be a balance between the forces that hold the molecules together and the energy required to break them up or break up the molecule in order to permit the chemical reactions which life depends. The precise fitness of our universe for life is gained has gained the admiration of scientists and has led many of them to comment that the universe appears to have been designed by an intelligent being. The world also must have been wisely designed in order for life to exist. The range of temperatures must be compatible with life, so the distance from the sun, the speed of rotation, and the composition of the atmosphere must all be in appropriate balance. Many other details of the world must be carefully designed. Truly God's wisdom is shown in what he has created. I thought it was well, well documented, well said. It's all true. It's all true. Any comment about that? So do you agree with the idea at the end, in the last paragraph, that everything needs to be carefully balanced, that the earth has to be in the right zone, the temperate zone, away from the sun? Uh, it has to rotate at the proper speed. If it rotates too slow, everything on the dark side would freeze. If it, if it rotates too fast, uh, you know, gravity would be too intense. Yes. I also read or saw on TV a science thing that said the Earth was in the perfect place for survivability and discoverability. If we had been further into the dust, we wouldn't have been able to see far into the reaches of the universe to see what's out there and where we stand in relationship to it. And we wouldn't have been able to survive if we were any further, close, closer to the center of our galaxy. Right, right. and so if Earth was further away at the at, at place where Mars is, what's the temperature going to be there? If we're up where Mercury or Venus is, what's the temperature there? I mean, so, okay. Let me ask you this question. With all that in mind, where did the water for the flood come from? The biblical flood. Where did the water come from? Was it rain like we get? No. no. Where, where, I mean, we're talking, the, when you're thinking about quantity here, look at your oceans. Okay? The oceans are the water that the, basically gave rise to the flood. And eventually, as the flood settled down, there was these deep troughs where the earth was kind of fractured up to allow some of it to sink down and the mountains to come up so we could have some landmass still. But if you took the, the, the deep valleys, if you will, out of the ocean and made, the, and made it all just a perfect sphere without these ups and downs uh, in the earth that there's enough water in the oceans to cover the entire planet by about, I think, six or ten feet. So where did all that water come from? Some of it came from under the earth. Anywhere else? Okay, a water canopy over the earth is, is what it's told. If you read in Genesis, the account there says that he separated the waters and, and, and made an atmosphere in between. That's what it says in Genesis. So there's this idea that there was a water canopy above the earth prior to the flood, and that water canopy would act as a, 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 a kind of a greenhouse uh, taking solar radiation. And this is important because it, it gives us um, insight into the carbon-14 dating mystery. Carbon-14 is an isotope of carbon-12, which is the normal carbon that, w- that is in its natural state. And it is formed when solar radiation hits carbon-12, forming carbon-14. And if there was this water canopy above the Earth prior to the flood then there's less solar radiation getting through, so any living material prior to the flood would have significantly less carbon-14 to start with, therefore would appear significantly older in any carbon-14 testing that would happen. So this water canopy not only gives us an answer for um, where the water for the flood came from, it gives us uh, insight into the carbon-14 mystery and how things are not 50 to 60,000 years old and, and so forth. Question, though. 
Uh, it may, may impact lifespans with less solar radiation as well, less mutation from solar radiation and so forth. Well, certainly less skin cancers, right? Also temperate zones. There was no uh, polar extremes. This is why you find woolly mammoths way up in the Arctic tundra. Okay, because the, there were no polar extremes, because the, it would radiate and spread the warmth around the whole, pl- the whole globe, and it would be just like one nice greenhouse on the whole planet. Question. You already agreed that, that there was a critical zone that the Earth had to be a particular distance from the sun in order to have the proper temperatures and so forth, but now you've just put a big old layer of water above the Earth in our distance from the sun, what's going to happen to the temperatures on Earth at this distance with that big water layer? Yeah. Isn't there some... Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so the Bible may give us a clue. And I know this is where Russell is going. Russell was going to suggest Isaiah 30, 26, which says the following, talking about when all things are going to be made new again. The moon will, will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the, like, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds of his inflicted. So there's a suggestion in scripture that prior to the flood, that the, that the moon was bright like our sun, and our sun was seven times brighter. And this energy would have then been necessary to sustain the water canopy above the earth. And the water canopy would have taken this energy and radiated it around, and we would have had a, a, a temperate globe. So there is an answer. I, I think I, I find it fascinating. Just a suggestion for you to, to meditate on. Tuesday's lesson. Comment. Yes. I, I, I'm sorry I came in late, but had you said anything yet about the depletion of the ozone layers and everything because of sin and pollution and all that? And... No, we hadn't mentioned anything about ozone yet. Did you want to mention something about that? Well, that, that's what I wanted to say. It's because of sin and degradation and everything. Everything's being worn away. No, I, I, we did mention the second law of thermodynamics and things tend toward disorder. And I think this is a good point you're making. All of nature, not just, Paul talks about all nature groans under the weight of sin. And nature is slowly decaying. The planet is slowly decaying. Um, so that's right. Ozone, it's very interesting. I wonder what ozone was like when we had the water canopy up there. Yeah, that would be an interesting. It would be, be interesting to see what the earth is like made new, won't it? Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph says, Though we cannot know exactly how God created, we are told that it was through his powerful word. All the energy in all parts of the universe has its origin in the word of God. All the energy in all our fuels came from God's power. All the gravity throughout the universe, every star guided in its course, every black hole results from God's power. Thoughts about that? He calleth all of them by names, the stars. Yeah. All of them. What do you think about this idea? It all comes from God's power. He speaks, boom, it's there. This is out of a book called Education, page 99. Upon all created things is seen the impress of the deity. Nature testifies of God. The susceptible susceptible mind, I like that, the susceptible, not every mind, because not every mind is susceptible. But the susceptible mind brought in contact with the miracle and mystery of the universe, universe cannot but recognize the working of infinite power. Not by its own inherent energy does the earth produce its bounties, and year by year continue its motion around the sun. An unseen hand guides the planets in their circuit of the heavens. A mysterious life pervades all nature, a life that sustains the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity. That life in the insect atom, which floats in the summer breeze, that wings the flight of the swallow and feeds of the young ravens which cry, that brings the bud blossom and the flower to fruit. The same power 
that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the stars and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of the, of the body, of the life of the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. Is this sounding like things we talk about in here? Yeah. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same, a life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discard, discord, anarchy, and ruin. How do you like that idea? Well, several profound things I read in here, and one of these is testable. You know, science can take a seed. Scientists can take a seed, and they can study it. They can break it down to its various chemical and biological components. But science cannot take those base elements and build a seed that actually grows. They can't. There's something... And, this, and what the scriptures suggest, what this writer suggests, is that there is life energy that comes from God. And that no experiment has been able to actually do anything to create life energy, to get something to grow, unless it's coming from something that's already alive. Yes? Uh, you've already mentioned half-lives, and uh, probably most people in this room are familiar with uh, Dr. Robert Gentry's work, where he um, identifies half-lives in minerals and, you know... The radio halos, yes. Yeah, pleochroic halos, he calls them. So, I think when you pursue that a little bit, that that also has a troublesome aspect because you find that um, some of the basic materials of of the Earth, you know, have half-lives which would extend way, way, way beyond 6,000 years. You know, which is the traditionally held view of, of creation. And so how do we answer that? Well, I mean, we've already said that we believe that this solar system was created from nothing by God, but... It's not exactly what we said, but go ahead. All right, well, in other words... And we said the universe was created by, by no pre-existing matter from God. Okay, all right. Well, I don't want to get I don't want to get lost in the details and waste time here. But I'm just saying that that um, we we ultimately need to be able to identify where where we reasonably believe this material came from, and how it ends up being part of our recently created Earth. And yeah, I, I think we've given that answer in here before. Anybody remember what we've said in here before? Yes. I don't know if I'm here with you. I'll talk about that before. But my example is always. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? God created the chicken. The chicken appeared to be several days or weeks or months old. When God created the rocks, I would assume that they could have been dated the next day. Yeah, this is one. This is one of the theories that the, the, the this is one of the theories that when God created the earth, He created it to appear old. Just say He created Adam to appear, to to in the form of a fully adult. Human being, he didn't create him as a baby to grow up. He created him fully adult. That he created the the creation already in its mature state. This is one theory that's often given. Um, given what we read earlier about the the Job thirty eight text, however, uh, and then you go through Genesis chapter one one uh, one one the first chapter of Genesis, where it talks about the earth was void and without form and 
darkness covered the face of the deep, and you, you know, take a little Hebrew and look up those words described there, it, it, it's describing a, a deep, dark pit, or an abyss even. In the Greek, it's the, the same word you get in, in, uh, in, Je- in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is thrown into the abyss. It's the same word in, in the Greek for both places, this deep abyss, this deep pit, where, there, where it's so dark there's not even light. And we've got you know, um, Job 38 indicating that angels are already in existence. We've got that text, uh, that reference out of um, uh, conflict and courage where uh, you know, angels are already in existence from, from one of the founders of our church. So putting it all together for me, I believe God created the universe billions of years ago from nothing. He just spoke it and it was there. I believe that there's intelligent life out there in uh, angels and perhaps other planets. I'm very open to that. I think uh, there's a text in Hebrews that uh, that suggests that God made other worlds. Some of the translations use worlds out there. I believe that's the case. Um, And I think they were in existence before earth. And then there was a conflict. And this is where understanding the great controversy in heaven really is beneficial to our understanding some of these things. A conflict uh, between Christ and Satan in heaven where Satan alleges certain things. And then creation of our planet, our solar system happens. And my view is that Christ went to a little corner of the Milky Way where he had created from nothing billions of years in the past, but there was a little black hole in the Milky Way, and he says, let there be light, and the black hole dissipates. And, and whatever matter was there that he, that he had created from nothing billions of years in the past, he now spins part of it into an ac- on its axis to create this planet, and then he creates the sun, moon, and stars on day four, meaning soul, our sun, moon, our moon, and Ver- Mercury, Venus, and Mars, stars of our solar system, on day four. And so this is one potential explanation where we can have consistency in Scripture and consistency in science, and there is no violation to either one. God is still the creator of everything. This is why I like Genesis 1-1 being about the solar system rather than the whole universe. And we have uh, let there be light on day one because the black hole dissipates and light from the Milky Way is now traveling through where it wasn't before and so forth. So, but the other theory is also a, a theory that's viable and makes sense to me too. They're not in conflict either. They're not in conflict. No, they're not in conflict either. So we'll come to some other um, references here in a minute that will shed some more light on that. Um, third paragraph in the lesson says, Many scientists believe that anything God may do in the creation is restricted by the laws of nature. But this idea is contrary to the Bible. God is not restricted by the law, natural law. Instead, God has determined natural law. God's power has not always followed the patterns we call the laws of nature. Any thoughts about that? Yes. To me, it's not what God can do. It's what God did do. And, and if, if I am on the premise that uh, God created... Uh, minerals that have a half light of a half a billion years, but he wanted to make it look like there's a lot shorter. Is he trying to trick us at something? Does he give us a mind to think and to try and discover what ha- what did happen rather than make something that we we design and say, oh, this is how God did it? So, so I I would agree that God is not a trickster. I would agree with that. So, so our interpretations need to be such that doesn't put God in the role of trying to trick us. I would agree with that. Yeah, Russell. We, we need to we need to understand that we have a a tip of the iceberg concept of, of God's natural laws. Uh, when you know, to, to to assume that He's going to operate out of harmony with the laws that He's created it makes Him out to be a liar and a charlatan. 
Well, when Christ walked on water, did he perform a miracle just to save himself a long swim? Or did he indeed operate in harmony with some physical law that we have no concept of? Uh, and, and we will learn that concept when, when, we, when we, our minds are no, no longer darkened by it. I, I like where you're going with this very much. I, like where I agree with everything you just said. Let, let's take that idea and let's, let's extrapolate and pull it out even further. I think this, this whole idea that this, this, as many scientists believe, that God um, you know, is restricted by his law, uh, laws of nature, I think this is a straw man. And I think that the theologians have reacted to the straw man because they operate under an imposed law construct. And once you on, operate under that imposed law construct, then God is free as the imposer of law to break his laws. Because he's the one who gave them, he's always got exception. It's like police don't have to actually obey the speed limit, do they? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Everybody pays to Caesar, but Caesar doesn't pay tax to Caesar. Okay, so the tax laws are for Caesar, are for everybody but Caesar, and this is basically their point: the laws that God made are not for, for God. Okay, but but that's because they operate under an imposed law construct. I'm going to get to you in a second, Lily. Um, that's because they uh, operate under an imposed law construct. But what you're saying, Russell, is that God is the originator. All law, or as we read in this text before, this passage before, all law originates with him. Therefore, God does not violate his own laws, ever violate his own laws. But he's never restricted because he is the definition. He is the definition of, of what creation is built upon and runs. It runs upon and is built upon. As we read in the Colossians text, all things hold together by him. So anything he does will be in harmony with natural law because natural law is an expression or extension of his working in nature. And I agree that we just don't understand. So let me, let me walk through a couple of questions see if it makes it more clear. If all things originated from God and he holds all things together by his constant care, then does he know how all the laws operate beyond our ability to understand? Of course he does. When God exercises his power, does he ever exercise it in ways that violate his nature and his character of love? Ever. No. Is nature built to operate in harmony with God's character and nature of love? Yes. So then whatever God is doing, it is always in harmony with natural law, as natural law is an expression of God's character of love, and God doesn't operate contrary to that. So God is expressing, as Russell said, his self in ways that we just can't comprehend, but it's not a violation of law. Yes, Lily. Well, I mean, I think it's different. For example, gravity. We can say it's part of natural law. But yet, God, when he came on this earth, he, he defines, he, he, he doesn't have to be bound by gravity because he's above it. Maybe he's running under a separate rule that we, you know, like a heavenly. I don't imagine that in heaven we're going to be bound by gravity. I think that's just an earth thing. I mean, we're going to be able to fly, you know? So I think that when Jesus came to earth, I mean, I don't know why does it matter to say, well, he didn't oppose them. He wasn't bound by the same set of you know, like the natural, I'm thinking about So you're suggesting Jesus, as our human savior, wasn't operating under the same... I'm talking about natural, physical. Like, yeah. he, he could create a miracle. He wasn't bound by gravity, but that doesn't mean he wasn't the same as... You know what, you know what I'm saying? I I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to clarify what you're saying. So you're saying Jesus had, um, was able to function in ways that we are not able to function in. I'm talking about not, not morally... I hear you. Uh, I'm talking no, about like no. certain natural things like gravity, walking on water. He he was able to act miraculously, maybe using a set of natural rules that we don't know, like you would say. He wasn't necessarily going against himself, but 
there, there might be other rules that we don't know, but it doesn't matter if he was bound or not by gravity. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, what does that matter so, regarding our salvation? That's actually, it matters quite significantly. Uh, when, when, when Satan tempted uh, Christ in um, the, uh, the wilderness, turn this, this stone into bread. Christ could have accessed his divine prerogatives. Could have. Okay. We, we don't, we could have. But he didn't. Why didn't he? Because we don't have, we can't do that on our own. Like if you walk on water to save somebody else. And, and Christ said, nothing he does, he does on his own. Right. There's nothing Christ did that some other human didn't do. The lesson is going to make this point about miracles in a minute. We'll get into the miracles. Um, but Christ didn't do anything that, not, that any other human did miraculously, what I mean, miraculously. Of course, he lived that life perfectly over sin. I'm not suggesting that. But the miracles over nature, he didn't do anything that any, any other human didn't do. Yes? In the back, in the back. I think the great things that we saw Jesus do was, like in the example of Peter walking on water, it's only by our lack of faith that we are limited so the question, though, is, did he, did he violate gravity? Does a hang glider violate gravity? Or is gravity necessary for hang gliding to take place? I'm going to suggest to you gravity was necessary for him to walk on water. If there was no gravity, he would have floated off into space. He was actually walking on water because gravity held him onto the water. Uh, why didn't he sink? Because there's some element of physics that we don't yet know. Perhaps he was able to, um, uh, the Holy Spirit was there, uh, or an angel was there to actually put their hand under his feet on every step, and an angel was actually holding him up. Perhaps they were, per, there's no modification. They're working within the laws of nature. How about they froze, and he was walking on ice with each step. Uh, and uh, we, we don't know the, the exact parameters upon which he was doing it, but I'm going to suggest to you that it's a straw man to suggest that God is restricted by the laws of nature. He cannot be restricted by the laws of nature. But it's also a false argument to suggest that he operates in violation of his laws. They're both false. We just don't comprehend or understand the way he's operating. Um, there's a couple of really interesting points. Go ahead. He is the law. He is the law. Yes, he is the law. Yes. Um, there was a hand in the back. Yes, you wanted to say something? Somebody's back. Okay. I was just going to suggest that in the early part of the 18th century, you could not fly. The early part of the, 19th, of the 20th century, you could. It's because we've learned a lot in that period of time. So there is a lot of natural law we don't know. There's so much more natural law we still don't know, too. Uh, especially, about, uh, especially about manipulating gravity and manipulating time, space-time. Um, that uh, the physicists have theories on this, and mathematics are demonstrating this, but we haven't yet had the ability to do this. God has the ability to do these things. But that's not violating them. It's working with them. Like we can manipulate air and wind and water, he can do that with gravity and time and space. Wednesday's lesson, creator of the heaven and earth. Um, why do you think it, the, the, the scripture emphasizes, boy, we've got four minutes and we'll never cover this. Why, why is it the scripture emphasizes that Jesus is the member of the Godhead through whom creation happened? Was the Father or the Spirit incapable? I thought that was so awesome when you were talking about it before because going back to last week where we're talking about Satan then being given the opportunity in that thousand years to go out and create something from nothing. Yeah. We are so incredibly blessed to be the middle part and they, we have the bookends of Christ having the demonstration of his creative capability as God and then Satan at the end having his... A thousand years in the abyss. Exactly. Yeah. Being able to, to have that chance to, to fall upon the challenge of can you create. 
So I, I think this goes to the deal, and I'm, I'm going to have to run fly through this. Um, I've got a lot of references we'll never get through, but it starts out in uh, Isaiah. Because the point being, let me just, Satan alleged equality with Christ. Lucifer in heaven said, I'm equal with Christ. There is no difference between the two of us. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the most, son of the morning? Uh, how are you cut down, blah, 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 blah. It goes on to describe all these things I'm going to read there. But who is this referring to in this Isaiah text? Lucifer, Satan, right? The other translations, that was the uh, New King James Version. Here is the NIV. How have you fallen from heaven, morning star? Son of the dawn. This is the uh, new, new revised standard version. How have you fall from heaven day star? Son of dawn. Now, does the day star reference or the morning star reference click any little things in your brain about other references in scripture? Any, any little you know, computer like, tut, 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 tut. wait, I've heard that somewhere else. The morning star rising in our hearts. There you go. Second Peter 1.19. Talking about the morning star rising in our hearts, referring to who? Jesus, exactly right. So here, the, the English is giving you a clue of a connection, but if you go to the Greek, it's even uh, more, more close to Greek and Latin. The word translated morning star referring to Christ in Second Peter is the word phosphorus, which translated into Latin, Lucifer. And the reason Lucifer comes out in Isaiah is because that's from the Latin Vulgate, uh, from the Hebrew, it was translated into Lucifer, the Latin, and then it was just brought right over into English. But Lucifer simply means bright shining star, bright light, and who is the light which lightens all men? According to John. Jesus is the light which lightens all men. So, um, and Lucifer is, you know, the, the light bearer. So throughout scripture, you find that prior to Jesus' incarnation into humanity, he appeared, notice my word, appeared in the form of an angel. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 tells us that the God, remember the Godhead that led the children of Israel out of Egypt and worked through Moses for those people was Jesus Christ. It said, they ate from the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for that drink was from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So we're given a clear indication that the member of the Godhead working with Moses to bring the children of Israel out was Jesus. And then you go to Exodus 3, 1 through 4, and it says, Now Moses was tending his flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the Mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the burning bush. When the Lord saw that uh, he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush. Who's in the bush? God, and it's described as the angel of the Lord. There's many, many, many other texts. I don't have time to give them to you all. But the point being is, prior to his incarnation, Jesus manifested or appeared in the form of an angel. I want to say this extremely clearly. Jesus was not an angel. He is God. But God is infinite, and Timothy tells us he lives in unapproachable light. Even angelic beings, he's infinite. They're finite. They cannot approach him. So God, wanting intimacy with his creation, has always had a member of the Godhead who would go out from God to, be, to in, interact and interface at the closest possible level of his creation, and that member has been Jesus. And Jesus left and would go out and interact in the form of an angel with his creation to have the closest communion possible. It was in this relationship that Lucifer looks over and says, hey, uh, he's no different than me. Why does he get to go up into those meetings with the Father and I don't get to go? It's unfair. It's not right. It's wrong. He's arbitrary. He's a, he plays favorites. 
And then I don't have, boy, I got some really great notes in the lesson for you to, to read. I encourage you to read about five paragraphs in here describing this whole controversy playing out in heaven and how God called a meeting of the heavenly angels and, and announced Christ's true position as one equal with the Father through whom Christ acted. Uh, Christ went out there after these allegations and went out and created earth and earth was created by Christ and how then Lucifer alleged back, ah, another counterattack. Now we have a ruler over us, somebody we have to obey to, our freedoms are going to be impinged upon because now Christ reigns over us. And, uh, and in response to that, this allegation that God is selfish, he imposes laws, he takes away freedoms. Uh, this whole controversy played out over this quality of who God is. And this is why Christ came. This is why Christ was the member through which creation happened because he showed, hey, I might look like an angel, but I ain't no angel. Okay? I made uh, just like, and, and if you think this is a hard concept to swallow, did Christ do such a good job of being human 2,000 years ago that many people failed to recognize he was God? This is not a hard concept to swallow, guys. He was a humble angel, just like he was a humble human, even though he was fully God. But then he demonstrated by, through his creative power in the, creating the microcosm of this earth with Adam and Eve in, in, in the image of God coming together in the unity of, of love to create beings in their image with creative power and dominion to rule. This world was a, was a microcosm of the, of the universe with Adam and Eve representing the Godhead. And, and why was it that Adam and Eve, when they would plan where they were going to put their next hibiscus bush, why was it that they didn't call the giraffe or the lion or the tiger over to discuss that with them first? Because they were selfish and didn't want to include them or because those animals couldn't contribute to the conversation? This is a met. This teaches why was Lucifer not included in conversations that, that Christ was in? Because as brilliant as he was, he couldn't contribute to a Godhead conversation. He was that far beneath him. Which gap do you think is better, bigger? The gap between you and an elephant or the gap between you and God? Which is bigger gap? Okay? The gap was huge, and this is why. It was not a selfish thing. He couldn't even understand the conversation if he was included. This is why. And, and so the creation reveals all these things. And this is why Christ is the member that came, because after we fell, you can be sure that Lucifer is saying, see, he, he thinks he can create, but look what a mess he made down here. I mean, he doesn't even know what he's doing. Look at how messed up those people are. They're killing each other. They're selfish. And they look just like him. See, he's selfish. And they look just like him. He made him in his image, didn't he tell you? Look how they're acting. Christ came to show. You see me, you've seen the Father. There's no selfishness here. And he came to fix his creation and to win us back and to disprove that the Godhead, the lies that, that, that God is selfish. He, he proved them wrong. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much of the abundant evidence you've given us that we didn't just happen after an explosion some corner of the universe or an IBM factory. That you were purposeful and intentional and brilliant in creating, creating this universe, creating life, creating us in your image. Yet we realize that we have been attacked, we've been infected, we've been damaged, and we need your healing. We pray that your spirit will come with truth, with love, transform us into your image, remove the, the preconceived ideas, give us unbiased and unprejudiced minds that we can go out and do careful experiment to know the way your universe really runs, to come into a true knowledge of your kingdom, to be participants of your love, and that we might be lights shining on a hill, witnessing to a world that still doesn't know you. It might be lighted, and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.